Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Law. I'm your host, Kathy Hermes. And today I'll be interviewing Dr. Erica Coleman, Dr. Coleman is an assistant professor of Black American Studies at the University of Delaware and a lecturer for the Center for Africana Studies at Johns Hopkins University. She is also a member of the Organization of American Historians Alana Committee, which focuses on the status of African American, Latino, Latino American, Native American, Asian American histories and historians. Dr. Coleman received her doctorate in American Studies from the Union Institute and University in 2005. During the 2006-2007 academic year, she completed a postdoctoral fellowship in scholarly information resources and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins. In 2008, she was a Mellon Summer Fellow for the Future of Minority Studies Consortium at Cornell University and a presenter for the What's the Use of Race conference at the MIT Faculty Club. Dr. Coleman has written her first book. The title is That the Blood Stay Pure, African Americans, Native Americans, and the Predicament of Race and Identity in Virginia, published by Indiana University Press in the fall of 2013. Dr. Coleman's book focuses on the history and legacy of Virginia's effort to maintain racial purity and its effect on Black-Indian kinship relations from the colonial era to the present. Um, Although this show is called New Books in Law, Dr. Coleman hasn't explicitly written the kind of legal treatise that we may be used to treating on this show. Instead, she's written a legal history that explores some of the complex social and cultural aspects of law and how it can affect communities, um, especially these racially divided communities in Virginia. Dr. Coleman, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Dr. Hermes. I appreciate you having me on. I wonder if you 
would begin just by saying a few words about yourself, um, where you come from, how you and how you became interested in the subject of these racial divisions and, uh, you know, the title of your book, Keeping the Blood Pure. Get the blood stay pure, indeed. Um, I'm a native Baltimorean, but my family is, our earliest known beginnings is in Virginia. And my family was from King George County, what is known as the gateway to the northern neck, King George County, Westmoreland County, and Caroline County. Um, I didn't know too much about the history of Virginia. Um, I spent a lot of summers in um, what we would call down, what my grandmother would call down home. She would always talk about going down home. And we would spend a month or so in the summertime, as we called it, down the country. But I really didn't know too much of that history. Um, I grew up in a very close-knit African-American community in Baltimore City, and there were numerous people who claimed to um, have African-American and Native American um, ancestry. Um, And, you know, the same would go, we got Indian in our family. Um, My stepfather, I knew, was a person of African-American, Native American ancestry. His mother was Cherokee and Lumbee Indian, and his father was African-American. But as far as my own personal family making claims to Native American ancestry, growing up, I never heard that. Um, At one point, I was... um, uh, sitting on my my stepfather's lap, and you know we were playing around. And then I said to him, "You know, Daddy, I want to be an Indian." And he said, "You are an Indian." And I'm like, "What? You are so crazy!" Because he knew the history of our family, I did not, and it was something that the family did not talk about. And so the first time that I heard this whole this claim that. You know, we were also people of our Native American ancestry, but from my great aunt, uh, Mary Jones, my grandmother's sister, who a few months before she died, related to me that, yes, we are also Native American. And, you know, this was not, you know, a subject that was really, you know, something that was to be talked about. It was, you know, what you call an unspoken, but it was something that she thought was very important to break, you know, our silence about. Um, As far as I was concerned, to be honest, I was very ambivalent about this. You know, like I said, I had, you know, grown up hearing this, you know, what I call this, you know, we're part Indian business, you know, and um, I was just, you know, so enamored to that whole thought of the one-drop rule. And, you know, I just didn't want to complicate things, you know. So, you know, on the on the outside, my response to her was quite enthusiastic, really. You know, and on the inside, I'm whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, it, it was something that just kept gnawing at me. It just kept, I, I just couldn't get away from it. And so um, I decided that I would, you know, look more into it, as I'm sure my great aunt was hoping, you know, um, she knew who to tell this to because she knew that I would go looking. Did and, did you think um, that, um, did, excuse me, do you think that um, there was more reason to believe this uh, about your family than, you know, because it's a common thing for right. Americans to say, I have a, right. a Native American princess ancestor, right. Right. right, or something. And and did you did you feel, oh, maybe there's something 
in this or were you very skeptical that it was even true? I was, at first I was a bit skeptical, to tell you the truth. You know, I was like, ah, whatever. You know, um, I just wasn't, I wasn't really sure. So I didn't go into this with, with the idea that, you know, I was going to track it down. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it was just, you know, my own, my own, you know, curiosity about this that just kind of got the better of me. I just really, <laughs> to be honest, I really didn't want to do this, you know, but, you know, it, it just kept, you know, gnawing at me. So I'm like, whatever. And then the other thing, too, is that I, I came into this with a very romanticized view of African-American, Native American relations. You know, I mean, I, I figured that there was a possibility and, you know, with all the romanticized talk that, you know, we were, you know, automatic allies, you know, we had one common enemy. And so then, of course, we would get together um, and that, you know, we would intermarry and commingle um, the whole idea of that was just, you know, very for, in, in the forefront of my mind. And, you know, as I began to inquire with, you know, various tribes in the Virginia region, um, then I, you know, I, I, I came more to see that, you know, this was a little, a lot more um, complicated then, you know, then it was the other thing that was surprising to me, embarrassingly, is that I really had no clue that there were still Indians in Virginia. Oh, I mean, you hear the stories yeah. about, the, you know, Powhatan and, you know, Pocahontas and the whole nine yards, but those people long disappeared. Those people were long gone, you know. So that was one of the things that was also um, a, a point of shock to me, really to tell you the truth, to learn that there were at that time eight state-recognized tribes. And I was like, oh. I, and I think that would be surprising to most people, uh, yes. you know, for Virginia history. For Virginia history. Also to learn that the oldest reservations in the United States are in King William County, Virginia, owned by the Pamunkey and the Mattapanai people, which actually predates the United States. So the oldest reservations are not in, you know, Arizona, not in, you know, Oklahoma, not out west, but in Virginia of all places. And it was like, whoa. Yeah, tell us a little more about your research process. So then with the research, um, I I wanted to, because this this book started out as my... um, uh, PhD dissertation, and initially I just thought that, you know, I would stay within the colonial era and just look at, you know, um, African-American, Native American relations, uh, particularly in the Northern Neck area, and um, that would, you know, pretty much be the end of it, but then I, I, don't, I have no clue at this time, I can't even recall what I was, you know, searching for on the Internet, but I came across an organization called uh, the Wyanoke Association of Red, Black History and Culture. And um, there was this advertisement for what they call a coming together festival, which occurs in uh, Charles City County, Virginia. 
please don't let the word city. Um, city is a misnomer. It's very royal. And um, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> the, you know, this county has barely taken a full step into the 19th century. Okay. It's wow. very still, yeah, very still royal. Um, and they, they want to keep it that way. Very little development. When they had their 200th, uh, or actually the 400th anniversary for, um, for Jamestown, um, eight of the 16 tourist attractions that they had were um, former slave plantations. Okay, so this is, this is how, um, what, I mean, you're taking a real step back in time um, when you go down there. And Charles City was the first um, multicultural community in British North America, which came about as, you know, the exploration of the British, the native peoples were already there. And then in 1619, there was a boatload of quote unquote Negroes that, you know, was brought to the area. And so then, you know, in, in this area in Charles City, which was actually um, occupied by the Wyanook Indians, the Paspahe, and the Chickahominy, this is where, you know, these folks were brought. And this is being celebrated as the first um, uh, landing of African people to British North America. Um, we don't really have time um, to go into, you know, some of the, compli the, the complications of the story, particularly as it pertains to the, um, the racial identity of those niggars, N-E-G-A-R, that um, John Roth identified because that term was so broadly used, it really didn't mean African. It meant um, people with a certain range of color. Mm -hmm. which was like actually, you know, brown to dark brown, black but not quite black, mm -hmm. okay? But it had to do with uh, color, you know, complexion. It really did not have to do with ethnicity. So I began to do this research, and I, I met the people there, um, Hugh and Anita Harrell, and they invited me over to their house after this event, and... um some other people came over, and then they just began to talk. First, it was like this small talk. Then the conversation moved to this issue of race, racial identity, and particularly the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. And what tell us a little act, bit about, about that act. That act was, it served as, now Virginia had already had, you know, anti-miscegenation laws. They had, um, I mean, the, the campaign to... Um, to, you know, maintain racial purity, you know, began almost as soon as the colony, okay? But, and, and, it, and in fact, one of the earliest statutes that we know of, because some of the records were destroyed, but we have the early statute of 1630, in which Hugh Davis is being um, whipped for lying with the Negro, for defiling himself with the Negro. So we see very early on that, you know, this whole idea of the separation of, you know, white people and non-white people um, became a campaign which, you know, Virginia, you know, continued on through the 20th century. So by the time you get to the 20th century, um, you're at the height of the eugenics movement. There's been a lot of um, 
you know, racial, you know, mingling and co-mingling and, you know, intermarriage or, you know, as I say, actually, interracial sex was the rule. Interracial marriage was the exception. Right. But, you know, it was recognized that, you know, um, if you want to manage and maintain white supremacy and racial and, and racial integrity, then you're going to have to, you know, whatever laws that you had, it was clear that those laws were ineffective and that they were very hard to, um, to maintain. And so Virginia decided that they wanted to be the vanguard in this um, this campaign for racial integrity. And they just wanted to be, you know, the standard bearer for this. And so um, they decided that, you know, they would, that they needed stronger legislation in order to do this. And so then uh, as early as uh, 1920, they began formulating this whole idea of the Racial Integrity Act. Now, the interesting thing about the Racial Integrity Act was that it was designed to define whiteness in the strictest of terms. And so, you know, what they did in the original bill, they said a white person is defined as someone of Caucasian blood only. Well, that caused a bit of a dilemma because the, the what the, what was considered the first families, the, the prominent elite families of Virginia, prided themselves on being descendants of the colonist John Roth and the Indian princess Pocahontas. Indeed. So if you're going to define whiteness as only Caucasian, there's a problem now because now you're going to have elite Families, families who have, you know, identified as, as white, well, sent over the line to, you know, the category of colored. And this caused a panic within, you know, Virginia's elite community. And so they lobbied, of course, um, to have the definition changed. And so they decided, okay, how about 164th? You can have you know, Caucasian blood and 164th the blood of the American Indian. And they thought about it for a second and they said, lower, lower, lower. <laughs> so then they decided 116th. So you can be Caucasian and, you know, 116th the blood of the American Indian and still be white. So it didn't and have to go quite, quite back to Pocahontas, but... Just about. Right, right, <laughs> right. As long as the white predominates, they were like, Phew. okay. And what they called that was the Pocahontas exception. Wow. Yeah. It is literally called, yes, it's the, it was inserted as the Pocahontas exception. Now, that, that was fine. That worked fine for the elite whites. But the way that regular Virginians, and particularly those in the Native American community interpreted that, was that, okay, as long as I claim to be white and Indian, then I'm not subjected to the Racial Integrity Act 
That means I can marry a white person if I want to. Um, I can, you know, ride in the, you know, ride in the front of the train. I can ride in the white only, you know. And so then, you know, they just believe that, okay, as long as I claim white Indian, then I'm fine. I mean, not, not even, you know, looking at those, you know, arbitrary percentages that they, um, that they use to qualify this. And so you had two people. Ava Soros and Ray Wynn, who actually were able to win their um, in, uh, their uh, indictments um, of anti-miscegenation, of violating that law, because they were able to convince the courts that although they had a relative or two who was identified as colored in the 19th century, on the 19th century census, that term color did not mean African. That term meant Indian. And, Interesting. Yeah, and as a result of that, what it did was it, it, it caused the state of Virginia, and particularly a man by the name of Walter Plecker, who was the first state registrar in Virginia. And, I mean, he was an ardent white supremacist, eugenicist, and he felt that it was his God-given duty to make sure that the um, Racial Integrity Act was correctly interpreted and correctly enforced. And so he literally began to, a war against the Indians stating these people have had historic relations with African people, which was true. And so there are no more Indians in Virginia. There are only Negroes. And then, of course, you know, um, and, and, uh, and so then at first when those cases were won, uh, he and it was two of his friends, John Powell and Ernest Xavier Cox, they dispersed they were going to go to the Supreme Court to, you know, on an appeal, but then thought better of it because, you know, someone said to them, well, you know what, you do that and this can be challenged on constitutional grounds and the whole thing could be overturned, which is what happened in Loving v. Virginia in 1967. But we're talking 1924. So then it took them six years, so then they decided, well, let's go the way of redefining, you know, the term Indian and the term colored. And so there was a six-year fight, and by the time we get to 1930, then the Virginia General Assembly amends the Racial Integrity Act, redefines Indians, saying, okay, the only Indians in Virginia are those who are residing on the reservations in King William County. That's it. And... um so Anybody else claiming to be Indian, you're colored, or you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're colored, which meant, you know, Negro, and which meant that you would be subjected to Jim Crow laws. Now, as long as you were resigning on the reservation, you were Indian. But the implication was, if you in so much as move across the road from the reservation, or if you, just, if you move off the reservation, then you're a Negro, you're no longer an Indian. So the residents the of... The residents of towns uh, who had mm-hmm. long identified as Indian mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or as mixed race uh, mm-hmm. would not be recognized. No. No, that was the law. That was the law. 
you know. So, I mean, this is, you know, the racial politics that um, went on. And what, what happened was, you know, the, the Virginia Indians, you know, feeling the threat of the loss of, you know, their Indian identity, also feeling the threat that they would be subjected to Jim Crow laws because, you know, if you were identified as Indian, you could ride in the white only um, section of the car. You could be um, serviced in the white only section of the hospital. Okay, um, you could for a time go to white schools, but then you could also have, you know, go to Indian schools. And so then the loss of, of the identity of Indian or as there was also a term that was used, um, Walter Plecker did enter into an agreement with some of the people saying, okay, you can be identified as mixed mixed Indian. Mixed Indian meant that, no, you could not be, you would be subjected to Jim Crow laws, but you could go to the local Indian school, which went from the kindergarten up to the eighth grade. But then once those, uh, once uh, uh, Aether Soros and Ray Wynn uh, won that case, he became very dogmatic. And I mean, terroristic, to be quite frank, and that's not an overstatement. He really terrorized these folks. And um, he decided, no, there are no more Indians in Virginia. You all are just a bunch of colored people. You're Negroes and feathers. And so then he, he, you know, started this war to obliterate the Indian, I mean, changing records, you know, threatening midwives, um, the whole nine yards, you know, threatening with, you know, if they, if they listed someone as Indian, then, you know, he would send a letter threatening them. He would put notations on the backs of um, birth certificates, and he always threatened with, you know, you're going to get tossed into the penitentiary if you attempt this again. And what it did was, you know, because of this, it had a, a, a huge effect on families, you know, living in, you know, Indian communities because then they began to fight with one another. So then when you had family members who, you know, looked African-American, even though they were a part of the Indian community and, you know, culturally were Indian, but it became a liability. And so then the project for the 1920s, I mean, I mean, for the 19, from the 1920s on, under the direction of um, renowned anthropologist Frank Speck was to expunge the black blood. So talk so a little bit about Frank Speck, because he, he plays a large part in your book. Um, he's an anthropologist who is mm-hmm. extremely respected, I think probably still is among yes. most academics. And um, and people don't think of him as having a role in the law, per se. Right. So this was, this was a fascinating part of the book. Yeah, Frank, because, and, and, and the reason why... Um, he doesn't really, you know, figure large in what we call this master narrative um, of the Virginia Racial Integrity Act is because everybody focuses on Walter Plecker. And as I point out in the book, the story does it really doesn't begin. The campaign for racial integrity doesn't begin nor does it end with Walter Plecker. And so then the other side of the racial integrity coin 
was, oh, no, these people do not have black ancestry. Um, if they did, you know, they did mix and mingle during the colonial period, but they have really behaved themselves um, since then. Um, they, have, they, have, they have, you know, turned from their evil ways. They realized the error of their way. And so what Frank Speck was instrumental in doing was in creating a secondary narrative which denied the historic and contemporary connections between African American and Native American people in the name of, you know, what they call salvage campaign, salvage ethnology, um, in fact, excuse me. Um, the salvage ethnology was, we need to save the Indians. And in his mind, how you save the Indians was to segregate them from the African-American community, I mean, irrespective of the fact that they have familial ties. So, you know, you weren't to go to school with them, to church with them, associate with them, lest you be reclassified as Negro. And his campaign for this actually started in uh, Milford, Delaware, among the Nanticoke Indians, which started about 1912. And this is the campaign that he used in order to, you know, uh, separate them from the African-American community and their relatives and to help them to gain recognition as Indian people. And so their, um, their official recognition came in 1922. Okay, through the Delaware state legislation. And so this becomes a model for his Virginia campaign. And he's working with people within, he's where some of his own students are coming down to Virginia working and, you know, advocating for them um, on the, um, with the state as well as with the federal government. In addition, you had a man by the name of James Colts who was a prominent um, citizen who lived in uh, Norfolk, Norfolk County, Virginia. And, you know, so he was kind of um, Speck's point man here in Virginia. And um, he, they wrote to each other back and forth. Their letters can be found at the American Philosophical um, Library in Philadelphia. And so, you know, the idea is to expunge the black blood. So what he wanted them to do was to, first of all, he tried to get them to, you know, formulate um, a pan-Indian alliance, okay, which they were, not, um, they were not apt to do, okay, particularly the Pamunkey who had nominal state recognition and they were very afraid to join in with the other group saying, well, the state doesn't even recognize these people as Indian. And the Pamunkey felt, well, you know, they would have a lot to gain, but we would have a lot to lose because first we have nominal recognition. Second of all, we also have our reservation, which, you know, there was an attempt both in the 19th and the 20th century to dispossess the Pamunkey of their reservation lands based on this notion that they are no longer Indian, but that they are indeed Negroes. Yes. You know, so you had this campaign going on with Speck um, up until about the 1950s. Speck died around the 1950s, but his crowning achievement, as some people view it, is that, you know, he was able to secure 
um, high school enrollment for Virginia Indian children in various Indian schools across the country, like the Cone College in Oklahoma, Muskogee, Oklahoma, in um, uh, high school boarding school, which is now Haskell Indian University, which is in Lawrence, Kansas, as well as the Cherokee Indian School in North Carolina. Um, in Cherokee, North Carolina. And William Willard Beatty of the Interior Department said this in 1945. He said, I know this is a long way for the children to go. He said, but at least it affords them the opportunity to attend um, uh, Indian schools instead of having to go to school with colored children. Because the, 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 the idea became we can't, because as time goes on, you know, Plecker is saying there's no more Indians in Virginia, therefore they can't go to the white schools. And among the Indian population, the attitude was we can't go to the white schools, we won't go to the black schools. And so... so both men, in a way, both men who are arguing different things, one that the yes. Indian is gone, one that the Indian still exists, wind up... Uh, in a sense, perpetuating the foundations for this racial integrity yes. law. Yes, yes, because the racial purity, as it was defined by whites and later adapted by Indian peoples, is the absence of blackness. So you could be... Uh, and this is why this is why the, this whole issue of Indian and white becomes very prevalent, because if you could simply prove that you were only Indian and white, because being being you know part white so called did not affect your Indianness. You could be you could be a mixture of both and still remain Indian. But then remember, you have that law of hypo-descent, the one-drop rule, because there's just something very magical <laughs> about African ancestry, that one drop of it will totally transform you into a Negro, regardless of how much so-called white ancestry or Indian ancestry, that one drop, you know. And so it's, it's, it's a really... Um, and of course, it's it's it, it's politics. This is not um, this is not biology, but this is you know the the, the whole idea that one. Drop. And then the other thing too is not just the one drop. It's this whole issue of racial contamination. If you have Indian blood, so called, and I'm saying so called because we know that race is not biological. Right. Um, it's not, it's, not, it's not biological. And so, you know, this whole idea of black blood so-called and its contamination, you know. So then it wasn't just, you know, just having, just having the one drop. That one drop would contaminate you through and through. Here's a, um, a wonderful quote that's taken from Langston Hughes' book. Um, he had a character, he wrote a series of stories with the character Simple. And um, Simple, you know, was, you know, quite the character indeed. And he often engaged in these very, you know, highfalutin philosophical um, debates. And so Simple says in this, um, this one segment of Simple Takes a Wife, it's powerful. That one drop of Negro blood, because just one drop of black blood makes you a colored man. One drop. You are Negro. Now why is that? 
Why is Negro blood so much more powerful than any other kind of blood in the world? Explain it to me. You're a college. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Look, you, you must have learned something in college that will help to explain all this, but there's no real explanation except for the reality that this is uh, 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 the, the pernicious um, campaign to maintain so-called racial purity, to guard the white gene pool at all costs. You know, to the point that, you know, you are separating families and communities. And this is the impact. So, you know, the master narrative about the Racial Integrity Act up until my book came along was this whole idea of, well, you know, Virginia came against, you know, the Indians, you know, as a result of the Racial Integrity Act and tried to obliterate the presence of Indian people. And then the cavalry, Frank Speck, and, you know, as, as Vine Deloria says, um, anthropologists and other friends, here comes the cavalry, and they came in to save them, and now there are eight uh, state-recognized eight tribes, and all is well. And that really would be a nice story if indeed all was well. But the Racial Integrity Act really, um, there was a con there was such a strong consequence. And that's one of the things that I thought about as I approached this work. What were the consequences of the Racial Integrity Act as it pertained to African-American and Native American relations and kinship ties in the state of Virginia? Because racism is never inconsequential. It is, it, 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 it's never without its consequences. And, you know, as I began to, you know, investigate this issue, that's when I realized, that's when, you know, the romanticism began to fade away. Yes, there were early alliances between, you know, African American and Native American people. There were no laws that forbade them from intermarrying and intermingling. But by, and then and, and much of this went on from, you know, the first, their the first encounters, which actually occurred almost a hundred years before. Um, 1619, um, because you know the Spanish was in the terror, it was in the Chesapeake area at least as early as uh, 1520, and they had African peoples with them. Okay, so then mm -hmm. you had this interaction going very early on, but you get to like the mid 19th century, and then with you know these these laws, particularly the land grabbing that went on, wherein you know people you know would say, well, actually. You're now free Negroes. You're no longer Indians. And this is what happened with the Gangaskin people on the eastern shore. And there were three attempts to dispossess them of their reservation, which they became successful in 1812. Okay. So, um, no, I'm sorry. It was 1814. In 1814, this is when, you know, the Gangaskin. So then a lot of the Indian people saw the handwriting on the wall, such as the Pamunkey, the Mattapanai, and the number of the mainland Indian tribes. And so then they began to also um, enact, you know, anti-black miscegenation laws, as the Pamunkey did in 1887, saying, well, you know, we're not going to, um, we won't condone black Indian intermarriage 
uh, black, white in a marriage is fine. Okay, or, you know, there's people leaving churches like the Pamunkey did in 1866 or 1865, actually, with the Colossal Baptist Church, and they began the um, uh, Pamunkey Indian Baptist Church in 1866. You had the Chickahominy who did the same thing when they separated from Cedar Grove Baptist Church and uh, Little Elam Baptist Church, both historically colored churches, and they formed the Sumerian Indian Baptist Church. And, you know, as Mr. Richard Bowman from Charles City said to me, he said, we lost over half of our family that day. I, I just because, thought that was heart-wrenching in your book, the the yeah. division between families who are going to the same church and then some are excluded, yeah. some have to form their own. Right, and it was it was it was an it was an effort, you know. This this whole you know idea of Indian revitalization, to revitalize Indian identity, revitalize Indian culture, um, revitalize the tribe, and so then those who had you know as the the Racial Integrity Act articulated any ascertainable. Now the truth of the matter is, is that all of them had African ancestry. But, of course, you know, the way that, you know, the genes play out, <laughs> the phenotypes, you know, some look, you know, you couldn't tell them any different from a white person, you know, as Jane Mooney and others attested to. Um, you, some of them look, you know, African-American, and some of them look stereotypically Indian, and then some of them look like a whole mixture of a whole lot of other stuff. You know, but those who you could look at and tell by, you know, um, color of skin and hair texture. And, I mean, this, is, this isn't right. This seems pretty crazy. But, you know, <laughs> some of these tribes had what you call the cone test. The cone test was to, you know, determine how much Indian you were. This is actually true. I know it sounds astonishing. But what they would do is they would take a comb and they would run it through your hair. And if the comb, you know, went through just fine, you were Indian enough, you could join the Indian church, you could join the tribe. If the comb got stuck, that meant you had too much African in you, you could not join the church, you could not join the tribe. I know, absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's it's in line with um, you're, you're familiar with the, the 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 paper brown bag test that started in Philadelphia. If you were the color of a brown paper bag or lighter, then you fit within you know a certain community, and particularly this had to do with church membership. So then you could join that particular church. If not, you know, then you had to go someplace else. Um, this divided because you had the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and then you had what is now the CME. It's called now the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, but it was all it was before it was called the Colored Methodist Episcopal Church, and the Colored Methodist Episcopal Church was comprised of those folks, you know, who you know felt that they were, you know, they were trying to really, you know, acculturate into white white culture. So then, you know, they, you know, it, it was all this, you know, very polite, um, very subdued behavior, um, you know, this, you know, patterned after, you know, what they considered was, you know, stereotypical middle class white culture. So okay. they're taking the racial. Certain, right. Go ahead. They're taking the the rule of the Racial Integrity Act, and then yeah. they're creating 
all kinds of rules that aren't really legally yes. binding yes. that are even more restrictive. Yes, exactly. And so you had, in 1945, you had James Coates, because one of the things that Frank Speck tried to get his folks to do, um, get the tribes to do, not only was to, you know, form this pan-Indian Indian alliance, but he wanted them to set up their, um, their tribes and their communities um, to reflect, um, to, to echo those in the West. So with this whole idea of, you know, tribal membership and base tribal roles. And so then they receive a letter, and this is something that um, Coates had sent to Frank Speck. And, you know, he sends them the letter that he sent out to the tribes telling them you need to... Um, you need to put this together, and you need to make sure that the only people who are worthy of being identified as Indian, that those are the only people who appear on the roll, only those people who are in good tribal standing. And then he defines for them those who are in good tribal standing. And the only people who are in good tribal standing are those who are Indian, or Indian and white. So irrespective of the familial ties, they got to go. And, you know, some of the tribes complied, some of the tribes, you know, wrestled with it and later, you know, um, complied. Um, there was a lot of disavowing of, 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 of family members, you know, going on during this time. And one of the things that... Um, uh, Mr. Richard Bowman talked about with his own personal family. He talks about his grandmother, Nancy Wyatt Atkins, and um, his, her brother, Henry Atkins, came to her trying to recruit her, you know, to become a member of the tribe. And she said, no, brother, no. She said, mama, born us into this world colored, I'm going to die colored. And I believe that, you know, what she was trying to say to him is that <laughs> we're not talking race here. We're talking family. Understand what this is doing to our family. But elders went on into the tribe. Nancy, you know, Atkins stayed within the colored community, and, you know, they had very little communication with each other. But yet there were also people... Um, that, on the other hand, had joined the Samaria Indian Baptist Church, who, after a while, said, no, something's wrong with this, you know. And it was um, one person, Andrew Warren Atkins, who actually did the reverse. He had initially joined with the rest of his family, but then went back to the African-American community, later married an African-American woman, um, and they moved to Alexandria, Virginia, and became the pastors of the, I believe it's the 8th Street Baptist Church. It's the first African-American church um, beyond Richmond, in the north of Richmond. Um, that's, in, that's in Alexandria, very prominent. And then he also started a high school for colored children because there was no high school for colored children. And this man, for the rest of his life, identified as African-American. The interesting thing, though, is that um, uh, his children, you know, and they were all very well-accomplished 
Um, his daughter served as the cryptic analyst for the government. His son, Rutherford, was a Tuskegee Airman. And also, um, when he died, he was the president of Fisk University, a historically black um, university in Tennessee. And what is interesting now is that it seems that the family, when you look at you know their obituaries or the things that's being written about them now, there now seems to be a concerted effort to separate them once again from their African-American background and to only claim them as Indian, because in some people's mind, you have to be one or the other. I'd like to, I'd like to actually ask you about a chapter in your book, um, since we're talking about you have to be one or the other. I'd like to ask you about a chapter in your book that I found so fascinating, and that's the chapter on Mildred Loving. Oh, indeed. <laughs> Can you tell us was, a little bit about? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, tell us a little bit about why Mildred Loving is in your book. Mildred Loving is in my book. Mildred got into my book by accident, <laughs> actually, because I had just as the majority of Americans, I had this, you know, very narrow view of that case. First of all, and embarrassingly, I didn't know a whole lot about it. You know, um, I knew about, you know, I knew that it was the case that overturned um, uh, anti-miscegenation laws. But what I didn't know was that um, it was far more complicated than simply black and white, and particularly when it came to the identity of Mildred, racial identity of Mildred Loving. And um, initially, that was going to be a footnote um, in the dissertation. You know, just to talk a little bit about anti-miscegenation, the, the overturning of anti-miscegenation laws, and then to, you know, to talk about how within the African-American, Native American context in Virginia, this had really had no effect whatsoever. Little did I know that I was getting into more than I had bargained for. When I started doing some reading on um, the Loving case, and then I realized, I was like, wait a minute. This was Carolina County Central Point? Really? And, you know, knowing the history, the, 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 the mixed-race population there, and particularly the population of African-American and Native American people in that area, I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute, hold it. This woman had to be red black. And so I um, contacted Jack B. Forbes, and, you know, it was a uh, professor emeritus from University of California, Davis. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah, I've interviewed um, Mrs. Loving a couple of times. He said, oh, yeah, she's Rappahannock. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't surprise me. But he didn't have her contact information. He said, let me look. He said, I haven't talked to her for a while. He said, it may take me a bit, but, you know, he said, you know, I'll try to get the contact information for you. But I went online and I um, got to the, um, went through the white pages and, you know, as they say, the third time is a charm. I just put in, you know, Central Point, Caroline County, put in the last name Loving, and then, as the, you know, the names came up, and I just started dialing. And the third person that I got to was actually her neighbor. She said, I'm not related to her, she said, but um, I do know her. She said, let me get back to you in 20 minutes. And so she got back to me, gave me her phone number, 
and I called her really nice lady, very nice lady. Um, and I was hoping that she would allow me to come to Virginia, to Central Point, you know, to sit across from her and to interview her. But she was, um, she was, you know, much older. I think she was at the time maybe um, in her mid-60s. Um, she had um, been suffering from, you know, arthritis for a while, rheumatoid arthritis. Plus, she um, was recovering from cancer. So she said, oh, I'm sorry. She said, I really don't see people anymore. She said, but I'll be very happy to speak with you over the phone. And, you know, I was a bit disappointed about that, but you take what you can get. And so as I interviewed her, I said, well, can we talk about your Native American ancestry? Oh, she just lit up. Oh, yes. So I let her tell me that she was Rappahannock. She said, I'm Rappahannock. She went through all this stuff and everything about being Indian. And I said, okay. I said, can we now talk about your African-American heritage? And she stiffened, and she says, I'm not black. And I said, What? <laughs> I have no black ancestry. We have no black people in our family. And that is when I was very glad that we were on the phone. <laughs> because, I mean, I was like, really? I mean, it was just so surprising to me to hear her say that, and particularly in the tone, you know, that she, that it was, you know, articulated. I mean, she was really taken aback. That I would even, you know, as my grandmother would say, how can you fix your mouth to say something like that? You know, and I thought, wow. And so I, I said to her, you know, I said, you have no blood. He said, no. She said, my, my one person was, you know, full-blooded Indian. She said her mother was, her father was Indian and white. She said one of her grandmothers came from Portugal. No, both of her grandmothers come from Virginia, trust me. Um, okay. And um, she, she, she just totally denied. So I said to her, I said, when the people came to arrest you in 1958, I said, did you tell them you were Indian? She said, yes, it's on my marriage license. And so I, um, uh, uh, Phil Newbeck had done a book. Her book had come out the year before on the loving. And so I checked uh, uh, Newbeck's book and didn't find it. So I sent the way to the um, Superior Court in the in the in Washington D.C. ten dollars, and I got it back. And sure enough, it said Richard Perry Loving White Mildred Delores Jeter Indian. And here is the thing: when Mildred and Richard Loving went to D.C. to get married, they were fully aware. They, they played the innocent and said, oh, we didn't know. Okay, so if you didn't know that you couldn't get married in Virginia, why didn't you ever try? No, because you knew full well that you could not get married in Virginia. The other thing, uh, the other reason why they went to D.C. was because Mildred would have never been able to get the identity of Indian put on her marriage license. She would have been identified as Negro or as colored. And, but they would go to D.C., couples who wanted to be identified as Indian, they would go to D.C. and marry because in D.C. they could get their marriage license with the racial identity of Indian. So there's a whole lot to this that meets the eye. Um, her brother told me the same thing. They only identify as Indian. All of her children who married 
um, that's Peggy and Donald and Sydney in Sydney. On all of their marriage licenses, they are identified as Indian. And we're talking, this is, you know, both, two got married in, and all of them got married in the 1980s. Sydney married three times in 82, 2000, and 2007. Um, their Social Security applications read, read other, because before you didn't have the Indian category, you just had black, you know, mm -hmm. black, white, and other. It says other. Her sisters, the same way that family identifies as Indian, and they deny having any African ancestry. And that's how the chapter ended up in the dissertation. And then I did further research. Um, so then the chapter in the book is expanded and updated. And it got there because I told my dissertation committee, I said, and, and they were fussing at me because they said I was doing too much. But I told them, I said, I have to include this because this goes to the heart of my argument regarding racial integrity. The Lovings adhered more to they're well, the people who they considered their opponents, they adhere to racial integrity far more than they care to realize. So then when, you know, um, people say that Richard Loving married Mildred Loving um, as a way of honoring, he was honoring or, 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 you know, fighting for the honor of this black woman, I say no, because he didn't know that he was marrying a black woman. He thought he was marrying an Indian woman. I, I found that just such a fascinating uh, chapter in the book. I think you're right. It absolutely does go to the heart of your argument. Um, in the chapter, you do mention that from time to time, Mildred Loving would identify mm -hmm. as uh, African-American in, in some context. But, right. But she did stick to this Indian, uh, mm -hmm. especially at the end of her life. Yes, yes. Yes, and I think a lot of it had to do with, because remember, in the letter that she writes to the ACLU, she, well, well, first, she identified this Negro on her Social Security application, you know, that, that, that she um, um, uh, applied for in uh, at least a year before she marries Richard. Then in the on the marriage license she is Indian. Then in the ACLU letter she is um part Indian, part Negro. And then as far as I know, she identifies as that for, you know, the rest of her most of her life until we get to um the end of the late nineteen late nineteen ninety seven. And then, you know, as I, as I argue in the book, there was some politics going on at that time with the Rappahannock Indians who were um, trying to get, or at least thinking of moving forward to, um, in the federal recognition process, who could ill afford for someone, particularly with Mildred Loving's reputation, to identify as having both African and Native American ancestry because of the way that this um, whole, you know, and even though the Racial Integrity Act is, is um, was, you know, was overturned, um, there is still this idea that 
you know, black ancestry and Native ancestry, Native American ancestry is incompatible and that once you once 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 you introduce that, you know, African American element, well, everything else falls you know, falls, you know, through the cracks. And so then the the one drop rule is still very much alive and well. And the Racial Integrity Act and the campaign against the Virginia Indians that, you know, what this consequence of, you know, pitting blacks against Indians, poisoning that relation, wherein you had this conflict between blacks, Indians, and Afro-Indian people, that is still very much alive and well. So even though, you know, Walter Plecker, who was, you know, what we call the racial purity policeman, the one who was just the, the, the most dogmatic and, you know, did the most damage, uh, he died in 1946. But the Racial Integrity Act and, and, and the sentiment behind it, unfortunately, is still alive and well, not just in Virginia, but in many tribes, you know, across the nation. Um, a, a lot of this, too, you know, dealing with the, the Cherokee freedmen, you know, um, and, very, and various other, other tribes, the Lumbee, who are trying to, you know, they have a nominal federal recognition. They're trying to get a, um, uh, you know, full federal recognition with all the benefits. And even with the Pamunkey Indians, the first tribe who will, you know, probably um, receive uh, federal acknowledgement in another year or so, when you read uh, the report, the preliminary report from the BIA, this tribe is commended for their discriminatory policy, you know, as it was pertained to African-American people, because by the mid uh, 20th, uh, 19th century is when, you know, they began, you know, this whole campaign of, you know, anti-black miscegenation, um, separating from, you know, churches, you know, affiliating. Now, that doesn't mean that they did not still um, cohabitate and commingle with black people. Sure. They did, and those who did suffered a, a, a deep consequence, a terrible consequence, because of that. They were put off the reservation. Um, they were disavowed by family members. I mean, just a very, you know, ugly episode that unfortunately, you know, continues. But then on the other side of that, you have people like the Nottaway Indian Tribe of Virginia, um, the um, Buffalo Ridge Cherokee, who are also known as the United Cherokee Indian Tribe of Virginia, um, the Shinnecock Tribe in New York, and a number of other tribes coast to coast who refuse to play the game of racial integrity and who embrace the idea all of my relations. Whether Professor they Coleman? are black, white, whatever. Yeah. All of my relations, all of you belong to me, and I belong to you. Professor Coleman, um, we're going to have to end now. I can't believe the time is up. I know. But, <laughs> but, uh, it goes so fast. I'm very pleased to end on uh, the more positive note that there are people trying to combat this. It's yes. um, quite it's quite enlightening to read your book um, that the blood stay pure on the one drop rule and the consequences of 
the hypo-dissent law, the um, Virginia Racial Integrity Act, um, and on the case of Mildred Loving, just a fascinating book. Um, I learned so much, and I'm sure that our listeners will too. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Hermes. I appreciate it. Take care, and uh, we wish you the best. Thank you so much. Thanks. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.